I'm always amazed at how God weaves together his message. And how he pulls together what we're going to talk about on any given Sunday. And how this morning is, is no different. The very fact that, that Frank was encouraged, that the Lord really put it on his heart. Tell her about the cross. Tell her about Calvary. As I just prayed, is an odd thing. That you would talk to someone who's struggling, especially dealing with tragedy, about the blood of Christ. About the cross. Wouldn't you think maybe you should start with something softer, a little more gentle, a little easier to take? And yet the blood is the issue. The blood is the point. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 10. And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Why, Lord? For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, No person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with the earth. For as the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Again, verse 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood, by reason of the life, that makes atonement. Father, I pray that you would give us these words this morning and help us to receive them. But I do not pray, Father, that you help us understand them. I don't pray for understanding this morning. But God, speak to us anyway. In Jesus' name. Amen. We hold in our hands a book that is inundated, soaked, drenched, saturated in blood. Reading through the offerings of Leviticus so far, we're 17 chapters into this book, and it is full of blood. But it's not just the book of Leviticus, it's the entire Bible. 460 times in God's Word, at least that much, blood is talked about. 90 times in Leviticus alone, 13 times in this chapter, Leviticus 17. And in pointing back to this chapter and drawing back to it, the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 9.22, Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. If not for the blood, we can forget the whole thing. Because without the blood, we have no cleansing. We have no forgiveness. We have no hope. And I remind you that God, our Creator, could have chosen anything to course through our veins. Any substance He wanted to function for human life. He could have done it without veins and blood vessels and corpuscles and all that. He could have done it without that at all. We could have just been filled with hot air. A few are. He could have done anything in the way He created us, but He chose at the beginning, when He created human life, when He created even animal life, that blood would be the substance. Why? Because He knew that he would be writing Leviticus 17. He knew eventually that his son would die on the cross and pouring out of the body of his son would be the blood. The blood. That graphic red solution that cannot help but impress our hearts and our minds as to the seriousness of its function. The blood. 
For the average person walking around, it indicates life or death. For the Jew, it indicated atonement, or as we've talked about, covering for sin. For the Christian, it's not just atonement. We talked about this last week. It's expiation for sin. It's a complete removal of sin by the blood, the perfect blood of Christ. And again, we might say, well, why is it that God does this? We talked about just a few weeks back, the blood, the blood, that we have a bloody faith. And some of you may be thinking this morning, oh great, oh no, not more about the blood. Haven't we had enough study about the blood? Peter Marshall was a Scotsman who immigrated to the United States. Some of you may have read his story in a book written by his wife, Catherine Marshall, A Man Called Peter. Some of you may have seen the movie that that came out based on the story. Peter Marshall came to the United States. He had a fun-loving heart and a passion to preach about Jesus. And his story is famous. But a certain part of the story, he, he ultimately became the chaplain for the United States Senate in the late 1940s, where he served two different times. But Peter Marshall, when he first came to, to the United States, went to actually the second church he came to in the States, was New York, let me see if I've got it here, New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. He came there in 1937, one of the largest Presbyterian churches in Washington, D.C., a huge church. And they called him to come and be their pastor. And Peter Marshall put them off and put them off. He didn't feel ready. He didn't feel worthy. He was 35 years old when this very well-known, long-time church, Abraham Lincoln, went to that church. And a lot of dignitaries in Washington, FDR, others, worshipped at that church. And so to be called there for him, it was was an awesome calling. But this 35-year-old finally, finally felt the pressing of the Lord on his heart, and so he went. And when he first arrived there, He was greeted by a rather dignified and elderly lady who came up to him and she said, Pastor Marshall, I do hope you won't talk too much about the blood as our previous pastor did. Peter Marshall replied, Madam, I promise you, I won't talk too much about the blood. She responded, I'm so glad to hear that. But before she could say another word, he said, because it is impossible to talk too much about the blood. And he would go on to preach many, many messages about the blood. Blood equals life. You can't have life without blood. And truly, you can't have real life, eternal life, without the blood of Christ. Without the blood of Jesus. And because of this, God declares, no man shall eat of the blood. You are to deal with it in a sober, solemn, serious way. A Jewish person would know this. An Orthodox Jew, even today, we talk about on Wednesday night, that when Yom Kippur comes around, the Day of Atonement, every year, which was just this past Thursday, there are some Jews who today will sacrifice a rooster for men in the family and a hen for the women. It's not biblical. They know that. But it it explains or expresses in the Orthodox Jew a deep sense that there has to be a shedding of blood for atonement. And so as a picture of the atonement that used to be able to happen in the temple, some Jews even today will sacrifice a rooster or a hen. And so because of the seriousness of this, and especially the Jewish mindset regarding blood, you might understand why a few Jews were upset when an itinerant rabbi came along and caused a bloody controversy. Flip in your Bible to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. 
We'll leave Leviticus and spend some time in John chapter 6 this morning, verse 51, I'll be reading. Jesus, by the way, as you're turning there, did some fantastic things in this particular chapter recorded by John. Miraculously, at the beginning of the chapter, he said 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fishes. Actually, it was 5,000 men. We don't even know how many women and children he fed. His disciples had seen him walk on water following that great miracle. And finally, he began to translate to the people in this chapter to explain to them about the fish and the loaves, to explain that he was the bread of life. And the whole reason for the miracle was a massive teaching experience so that the people can understand where true bread, where true life came from. It came from Jesus, from himself. And things were going great. He was flying high. The people were flocking to him. This was a massive evangelical crusade. This was the time. This was it. If you're going to get anybody, if you're going to involve any people in your ministry, Jesus, now's it. Lower the boom. Give them the love. Talk to them about grace. Draw them in. Use any means necessary, Lord. You've got their attention. And what does Jesus do? Something I wouldn't have done. Every instinct in me as a pastor would say no to what Jesus does. Verse 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Excuse me? 52. The Jews. They began to argue with one another, saying... How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Did you hear this? Is he talking about cannibalism? What's going on here? I'm a little confused. This is problematic. Jesus said to them, verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Oh, great, Jesus, push it off the cliff. I mean, you could have been a little more vague. He goes on, he said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my drink is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. Verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Remember the Jewish mindset about blood. Remember where they would come from. What they would understand. What would be drilled into them law after law after law in their study of the word, in their understanding of the word. You don't drink the blood. You don't touch the blood. You'll leave the blood alone. And Jesus is saying, hey, flesh and blood, eat up. Dig in. It's me. Drink my blood. You can almost hear their brains starting to click and to kick into high gears. They're trying to figure the whole thing out. And it tells us in verse 60 that many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? (laughs) Yeah. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, he began to speak to them. He said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? Uh Uh-huh. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. But the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. 
For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted him by the Father. And as a result of this, as a result of this, watch closely, many of his disciples withdrew and were not following with him, walking with him anymore. Gang, we're not talking about the crowd. We're talking about disciples. Many of his disciples were struggling with this. Those who had walked with him. Those who considered him their teacher, their rabbi. Those who were learning from Jesus. And they heard this and they said, I'm done. I'm done. I'm going back to Gamaliel or whoever. I'm going to go find another rabbi. I can't listen to this kind of teaching. And Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? I want you to notice something, and it's just interesting to me that John chapter 6, verse 66, tells us that his disciples withdrew, which is exactly what the Bible says Antichrist is all about. Those of you prophecy buffs who know the name, the number of Antichrist in the book of Revelation is? That's right. So here we are in verse 66 of chapter 6, and the disciples are walking away. The disciples are withdrawing. 1 John chapter 1, verse 22 says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And 2 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, For, as many, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and Antichrist. And as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. But can you blame them? Now, I'm not talking about thinking in terms of a Christian mindset where we just took communion. And we've studied and we've talked about and we understand the flesh being representative and the blood being spiritual. And we know these things. And now as we look back, we read John chapter 6 and go, oh, that's a beautiful statement of what communion is all about. Thank you, Lord. I'm talking about from the Jewish mindset saying, what? This is wrong. What are you talking about? How can you say these things? What would I do, gang? What would I do if I were there? If I was one of these Jewish people and Jesus slammed headfirst into my tradition, into everything I believed, into the things I held dear, suddenly Jesus is questioning it, challenging it, twisting it, if you will. How would I respond? In fact, what would I do if Jesus slammed headfirst into my traditions today? We are, as the British Christian Fellowship, a melting pot, as many of you have become aware. I'm not sure if you realize how diverse the backgrounds are of people who are worshiping in this fellowship. It's kind of what happens when you just start a church and you're not connected to any one denomination. People come from everywhere, every different kind of place, so there's not one mainstream that we can connect to. And we all have our own traditions. What happens when Jesus begins to challenge yours? What happens when the pure, straightforward study of His Word begins to shake up the very things you believe in? Well, let's look at the disciples. Jesus again, verse 67, said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Notice what Peter does not say. Oh, we understand what you meant by the blood statement. He doesn't say that. Peter is not speaking from understanding. He's speaking from faith. 
Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you? You can almost hear the smile in that. <laughs> Peter expressing faith and Jesus goes, Yeah, I chose you. You're one of mine. And yet, he says, one of you is a devil. And he meant Judas Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, here's a troubling issue. Again, you and I understand this. We can read John chapter 6, we can say, okay, it's the blood, it's the flesh, it's communion, it's, it's that understanding of Jesus dying for us. We can apply it spiritually. It's not law violational behavior. He's not talking cannibalism. He's not inviting the people to cut him open and start drinking. We know, we understand he's speaking about intimacy. He's talking about communing together, eating up his words, feeding on his presence, drinking in his spirit. These are the things he's talking about in this chapter. We get it, we understand, but here's the problem. They didn't. They didn't. So, so he didn't explain it to them. As one with a teacher's heart, that drives me nuts. Why didn't you tell them, Lord? As they begin to scatter, as they begin to disperse, as this massive movement begins to fall apart before your very eyes, Lord, why didn't you say, hang on, hang on, wait a minute. Let me explain what I meant. Don't go rushing off. Jesus does the exact opposite. Turns to his own twelve, the closest to him, and says, you guys want to go? There's the door. You want to leave too? Because this is it. And I am not qualifying my words I'm not offering explanation. And you know what? Jesus did that all the time in his ministry. While we in our 2005 world, we seek for application and practicality in everything. We don't feel like we've really understood a sermon until it's been applied to our lives. And we can walk out the door and go, okay, I've got three steps to living for this week. Jesus didn't do it. He rarely did that. I challenge you, go through and read his messages. How often did Jesus say something, he'd give a parable, and then he'd walk away. And his own disciples would have to say, Lord, we have no clue what that meant. Can you please explain this to us? And he would sometimes tell his disciples. But oftentimes people would just be standing around with their mouths wide open. The rich young man who came up to Jesus, Mark chapter 10. You remember the story? He comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I'm a good guy and I'd like to follow you. What do I need to do? And Jesus says, hey, it's not a problem. You just need to keep these commandments. He lists several. Leaves out one. And the guy says, hey, I've done all that since I was a child. And Jesus says, great, now go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And come on. We're about to hit the road. And the young man went away sad. And Jesus didn't say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me explain what I mean. Let me make this a little easier for you. You don't have to sell everything. Just put it in storage and come follow me. He didn't do it. We know from the chapter, Mark chapter 10, that he loved this young man. Because the Bible tells us he looked at him with love before he answered. But he didn't let him off the hook. He didn't make it easy. He didn't explain himself And verse 22 of Mark chapter 10 tells us that these words, the young man was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Go after him, Jesus. Stop him. Tell him what you mean. Save him. Says my human heart. But Jesus wasn't that way. He didn't pressure. He didn't cajole. He didn't beg. Luke chapter 10, verse 41, he said, Martha... (laughs) Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. Only one thing's necessary. Mary has chosen that. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, he said, Don't worry about tomorrow. 
tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Just deal with today. Jesus was so kicked back. He was a relaxed redeemer. You know, the kickback Christ, the mellow Messiah. It's just the way he was. It's rare that Jesus even got his ire up, you know, in the temple he did when he got really angry. Few and far between were moments like that. Mostly, Jesus just taught, he healed, he moved around, he did what he needed to do. He didn't pass an offering plate, he didn't give altar calls, he didn't have ministry sign up days. He just shared the truth. And when the truth was misunderstood, listen, when the truth was misunderstood, oftentimes he let it be. Which is very different than the way we think about evangelism. Frank mentioning Miss Lady Sharon. And my, my instinct says, Frank, let's, let's develop a strategy for talking to her. Let's come up with a list of things to say. What, what you're going to share. How, how you're going to help her move out of this place of pain into this place of salvation. Let's talk about that. That'll be perfect. God said, tell her about the cross. What if she doesn't get it? What if she walks away? What do you mean Jesus died on the cross for me? What does that have to do with my present situation? What if it upsets her? Jesus would say, tell her about the cross. And let her misunderstand. Let her deal with the words. We are so good at evangelical debates over just plain old sweet conversion God's way. I want to explain, give you a few things here this morning that might help you. It helped me with this whole idea of relaxing in my faith, of not being so uptight about how to give the word to Jesus, or specifically how to receive the word even in my own heart, in my own life. I don't know if you've been there, but that place where you're reading maybe a passage in the Bible and you're going, I just don't get it, Lord. I need explanation. Pastor Rick, can you explain this? And half the time I'm going, where are my commentaries? <laughs> I get emails. Can you explain this one? I have no, Jim sent me an email. It took me three weeks to respond. What's the significance of the number five in the Bible? <laughs> now, he didn't see what he saw was my eloquent response three weeks later. I was a little busy, so I needed some time to think about this, and I'll get right back to you. How do we handle it when we don't understand? When something going on in our life is fun, when our kids go off the road. When the doctor gives me the call. When I'm dealing with tragedy. And when my gut reaction is, God, how can you allow this to be when 40,000 people are killed in an earthquake? Thousands of others removed in a flood, in a hurricane. I don't understand these things. And heaven is silent. What do you do? Listen to this. Three keys. (laughs) Three keys. To relaxing in your face. And think about this. Number one is patience. Patience. Look back at verse 63. Verse 63 tells us it is the Spirit, Jesus speaking. It is the Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and our life. Patience. Patience. Jesus had this wonderful understanding of the Holy Spirit's timing. And He didn't press it. Jesus would teach. This is one reason why he did what he did. He would teach and let the words just hang there. And let the person wander off, confused, 
knowing that the Holy Spirit was going to begin to explain things in His time. Knowing that maybe down the road, a week, two weeks, a year, something was going to happen in that person's life and the Spirit was going to say, remember what Jesus said? Oh, I get it. Patience. Jesus didn't press it. He didn't push it. He understood the Spirit's timing. The flesh, Jesus says, the flesh profits nothing. We could say it this way. The flesh debates endlessly. How many people, just curious, how many people have gotten into a debate over what you believe? Anybody? Argued with someone about their faith? <laughs> Keep your hands up, Kevin. That's great. <laughs> I will never forget the day in my high school years when I was face-to-face with another Christian arguing at lunchtime in the high school commons. Other high school students standing around going, I know those Christians are supposed to love each other. Guess not. <laughs> As we're going back and forth, no, no, this is what it means. Well, I think you're completely wrong. Well, I think you're going to hell. Well, that's real nice to say I'm going to church and you're not. You're, you know, we're going around and around. That's what the flesh does. The flesh debates. The flesh proves. The flesh argues incessantly. But the spirit gives life. The Spirit quickens things that are dead in us. It brings our hearts to life as we read, as we hear the Word. As we hear the Word. Jesus said in John 14, 26, The Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit will bring your understanding, which is why I prayed this morning that we wouldn't immediately receive understanding. The Holy Spirit will bring it. He'll give it to you. He will give you revelation. God will bring application to your life. The Word can only be made real, gang. Listen to this. The Word can only be made real in the heart of a person who has been touched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, its laws, its decrees, it's dead and it's dry. The Spirit will teach you. Jesus, again, often didn't give application. Didn't give five-point sermons. Because you will never argue someone into the kingdom of God. You can't do it. You may have tried and found yourself very frustrated. I have on numerous occasions. I get very passionate about this stuff. When I'm talking to someone who disagrees with me, I can get after them. I can win the argument and walk away having lost a soul because I needed it to happen then and now. As opposed to letting the Spirit do what He does. So how am I supposed to win someone over for Christ if I'm not going to argue with them or at least talk about it? Oh, you can talk about it, but don't use your words. Can I just encourage you to just use Scripture? Tell them about the cross. Read them a Bible verse and they'll go, huh? Just, just wanted to read your verse. I'll let you go after that. I think it's just wind for a really big bird. <laughs> Isaiah 55, verse 11, the Bible tells us, and this is a great verse, you should all have this one just emblazoned on your brains. My word, which goes forth from my mouth, will not return to me empty. My word, which goes forth from my mouth, will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Now, gang, listen, my words return to me empty all the time. Ask my wife. My words go floating about everywhere. Because I use so many words. Some of you know this. In normal marital relationships, the woman tends to have more words per day than she can use, you know, by a substantial amount, than the man does. The man, you know, uses up his two two thousand words or so, and he's done. You know, he doesn't have anything else to say. In our marriage, Cheryl and I have recognized it's the opposite. She runs out of words about 10 a.m. I'm still going strong at 11 p.m. She's ready to go to sleep. I'm like, 
hey, you awake over there? I was just thinking about something. Shut up! You know, she doesn't say that. She doesn't say that. She just sweetly and gently goes to sleep. Leaves me talking to myself. But my word, God says, doesn't go out and return empty. My word fills up. My word gets into people's hearts. My word changes lives. And so if you want to talk to someone about Jesus, man, just be patient. Give them a verse. Tell them something that the Lord said, not something that you would say. Give them the word and don't argue with them. You know, I like to think of it this way, and this is a good way to look at it. The word of God is a ticking time bomb, which means it's going to go off. Just stick the little time bomb in their heart and walk away. (laughs) Plant the bomb and let it go off in God's timing. Number two, number one is patience. Jesus understood the Spirit's timing. Number two, power. Jesus understood the Father's drawing. Listen to verse 65. And 65. Interesting. He says, For this reason I said to you, No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Look back. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, only God can cause a person to come to Jesus, not you and not me. Which is what Jesus is saying here. Not clever words, not knowledge, not tricky answers. It doesn't work. The Father determines who and when a person will come to Jesus. And you might say, well, Rick, that sounds a little fatalistic. Sounds like you're a little into a predestination. No, I'm, I'm not at all. I'm just talking about God's sovereignty. That God will do what God is going to do His way. And that we don't come to the Father unless the Father chooses for us to come to Him. Well, how do I know the Father wants me? My answer to that question is, is He drawing you to Jesus? Then He wants you. It's very simple. And the Father's heart, by the way, on wanting you is unmistakable. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the, lowest, the, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any, any to uh, perish, but for all to come to repentance. Who does God desire not to perish? Who does God desire not to perish? All! Oh! <laughs> He doesn't want anyone to perish. So the answer to the question, well, okay, so I can only come to Jesus if God draws me. What if He doesn't draw me? Well, He will. He is. In fact, if you're asking the question, He is. You're in the middle of wondering why God hasn't talked to you. He's talking to you. If you're curious about the Lord in any way, shape, or form, guess what? His Holy Spirit is going, Hello? Trying to get your attention? The point is, gang, it's not that God is rejecting some and choosing others. It's that you are not the one whose power will lead someone to Christ. God is. His power, not yours. Patience, power. And number three, perseverance. Jesus understood his disciples' choosing. Verse 67. You don't want to go away too, do you? Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the only, the Holy One of God. Peter's words, wonderful. We believe. We believe. Where else can we go? I don't have any idea what you were talking about with the blood there, Jesus, but I believe. I have faith. 
Gang, when you are frustrated in your life, when you are struggling yourself, when your problems are difficult for you, or when you don't know how to explain or answer the problems of somebody else, you have two choices. You can retreat in frustration. Many people did that day. Many disciples left Jesus that day. Many walked away. I've been in ministry, what? A while. And in that time, I have watched Christians walk away. I have watched believers who at one time I thought were very strong in their faith leave their faith, leave the Lord, saying, I don't get it anymore. The problem is not the circumstance of their lives. The problem is they have chosen to no longer believe. They've chosen to. Jesus understood something about the heart of man. He understood that we have choice. And so he calls on us for perseverance. He understood his disciples choosing. Well, you can retreat in frustration or you can relax. You can relax in faith. You can retreat in frustration or you can relax in faith. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, We walk by faith, not by sight. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And I want to tell you one other thing. You have no idea how often I teach on faith. I'm not talking about how often I teach about faith. You know that. What you don't know is how often I teach on faith. That is barely knowing what I'm about to share. Barely having a handle on what God's Word is bringing to us that morning. I walk down here many times praying, God, I'm not sure I get this. Please help them get it. (laughs) Please somehow get your Word across to all of us. I don't teach, gang, because I've got this massive mind and this great background and all this schooling. I am, sometimes, Cheryl knows, it's like being one step ahead of the tidal wave. You know, as I'm studying through the week, I've got to get to understand, what, Lord, what does this mean? Help me understand. And there are many times I will stand up here and I'll say things to you, and this is going to make you feel really safe and good. I'll say things to you on faith. I don't know that I understand it, but I know the Bible says it. I know that God's Word teaches it. Can I fully explain it? Not often, but I know it's here. And I know what the book says. Relax in faith. Relax in faith. So, Jesus is leading us to be like Jesus in patience for the Spirit's timing. In the power of God's drawing and the perseverance of our own choosing. Why does God ask this of us? Why does He put us in these situations? Why does He even allow or cause these bloody controversies in our lives? Why not just make it easy for us? Why do we have to deal with faith at all? Because, gang, faith is a muscle that must be worked out or it will atrophy and die. And God wants you to learn the language of faith. Jesus said it, Matthew 5.45, The sun rises on the evil and the good. Rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Hey, it happens to everybody. Life happens to everybody. You are going to hit a time of crisis in your life. You may be cruising along easy, and eventually tragedy is going to strike. Problems will hit. What are you going to do? God says, I want you to be walking in faith, exercising your muscles of faith in the easy times, so when the hard times hit, man, you can continue to walk in faith. I do not understand what God is doing in my life right now, but I believe in Him. 
I don't have anywhere else to go. I trust Him. I'm hurting, I'm frightened, I'm scared, but I know God is God. I will believe in Him. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled, John 14.1. I go to prepare a place for you. He said, Hebrews 13.5, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. Matthew 28, verse 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And faith is exercised when you can't explain things, but choose to believe anyway. Well, that's not logical. Does it make sense? Listen. We could spend every day in the logic, the science, and the sense of Scripture. We have many times. There is no more logical approach to life. No more sense that can come than what comes out of Scripture. Science hasn't proven anything that God hasn't already talked about in one way or another. We can go to the facts, but God is not concerned with the facts. He's concerned with the faith. And he's inviting us to walk in faith. Does that mean I just believe without testing anything? No, test it. But believe. Let the issue be faith and not fact. Peter, I am convinced, I am convinced, did not understand the blood because I think he would have referenced it. I think he would have said, oh... Oh, no, no, Lord, we got it. Your flesh and your blood, you're talking about, you know, that eventually you're going to have a sacrifice and then we're going to take communion following that. We're going to understand it. I, I get it. He didn't say that. He said, Lord, I believe. <laughs> I don't have a clue, but I believe. This is how Peter lived. Peter had great faith. Peter was the one, remember, he stepped out of the boat. Not because he really thought he could walk on water, but because Jesus was there and he trusted his Lord at least for one step. Sometimes that's all God is asking. Trust me for one step. Last question for you and we're done today. What would you have done had you been a disciple in Jesus' day when he started talking about this offensive blood? Would you have walked away? What would you have done if Jesus' very words challenged your faith?